Now King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some were saying John the baptizer has been raised from the dead, and for this reason these powers are at work in him. But others said it is Elijah, and others said it's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For Herod himself had sent men who arrested John, bound him, and put him in prison in account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because Herod had married her. For John had been telling Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to kill him. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he protected him. When Herod heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his courtiers and officers and for the leaders of Galilee. When his daughter Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guest, and the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it. And he solemnly swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you even half of my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What should I ask for? And she replied, The head of John the baptizer. Immediately she rushed back to the king and requested, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was deeply, deeply grieved, yet out of regard for his oaths and for the guests, he did not want to refuse her. So the king sent a soldier of the guard with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl. Then the girl said to her mother, When his disciples heard about it, they came took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is the word of the Lord. Isn't this a sad story? Wow, what a sad story. Herod here is not really a king. Mark is generous in calling him king. He was the son of a king. Herod the Great was his father. Herod the Great had died in the year 4 before the Common Era. Herod Antipas is the one actually being talked about here. He was born in the year 20 before the Common Era. He was only 16 when Herod the Great died. He did ascend to the throne of his father, but technically he was a tetrarch, uh, directly under the supervision of the Roman government and the Roman Empire. He could have been removed at any time. In fact, after he ruled from the time he was 16 until he was 59, he began demanding more and more that people call him king, and the Romans finally had enough of it and banished him all the way across the Mediterranean Sea to the country of Gaul, where he died. Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, fell in love with his brother's wife. It was against the Jewish law for him to marry the wife of his brother while his brother was still alive. Not only was she his brother's wife, she was his niece. She was a daughter also in this long line of descent from Herod the Great. Herod Antipas likes to hear John preach, even though John points an accusing finger at him and says, you should not have married your brother's wife. But Herodias dwells on it looks for a way to get rid of John the baptizer. So when Herod has a birthday and he's invited lots of important people from around the Sea of Galilee to the city of Tiberias, which he had had built himself, 
on an old Jewish cemetery, which did not endear him to them either, uh, suddenly in came this beautiful young woman who did a very sensual dance. The king is so touched, he says, ask for whatever you want. Now, scholars say he couldn't have given away an acre without the Romans' permission, but nonetheless, he makes this huge boast. Ask whatever you want. Half my kingdom, it'll be yours. She said, I want the head of John the baptizer. It grieves him, but he sees only one of two things he can do. He can either say, I'm sorry, I like John, I like to hear him preach. Or he could have said, I'm going to give in to her in front of all these important people because I promised I would. And that's what he does. And so John is beheaded. And a spectacle made of bringing this severed head into the party on a platter. And then a sad note. His disciples heard about it, came and took this beheaded body and buried it in a tomb. Let's take a look. Number one. First thing I underlined here is John is Mark's statement. Jesus was well known. I mean, he's the center of our story. God Almighty's so loving the world that he sent his son Jesus, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Did you see Bill Sherman's column in the Tulsa World a couple of weeks ago? He was writing about a group of Christians who came from Veronese, Russia, to sing and preach at Christ United Methodist Church here. They were here because 17 years ago, just four years after the old Soviet Union began to fall apart, Dr. Bob Pearson, pastor at Christ at that time, led a small group of missionaries to Russia to teach and preach. They were told that in Veronese there was a young professor, a woman 33 years old. They came to know later that she was not only professor of English there, she was married, mother of one, had grown up in the Communist Party, had been an atheist all of her life, but she needed the money, they needed a translator, she hired on. Later she would say that she had had suicidal thoughts before, her life was going absolutely nowhere, she was miserable. And night after night she had to listen so carefully to the witness that these Methodists from Christ Church were giving so that she could translate properly. And she said, as night followed night, she came to believe this is what I've been missing. This is what's been missing. And after she had translated that invitation one more time, she herself walked forward. It was 17 years ago. She'll be 50 this year. She is now an ordained minister in the United Methodist Church in Russia. Because Jesus was made known to her. He was made known to her. And she came to believe. Second thing. Herod hears John. It perplexes him, Mark said, because Herod's telling him things he doesn't really want to hear about sin. Dr. Rodney Clapp had an article just recently in Christian Century Magazine about his laptop computer. He said, my laptop computer, I got a virus, just the worst kind of virus in my laptop, and I didn't know what to do. So I took it to have it fixed. And I was told that whenever one hooks into the Internet, one is vulnerable to all these viruses. 
And they may well come from a place you've never even heard of, from a person whose name you will never know. When you hook in, you become vulnerable. And that the only chance that this laptop could be made clean was for someone outside the system who's willing to come into the system to clean it. Like Jesus, he said, who became very man a very man as he was also very God a very God. Number three. Herod Antipas throws up his hands, has decided, what can I do? Go get John's head, bring it on a platter. Sad because we've seen this happen for centuries to poor people who often die at the whim of somebody who's in power, who has authority, someone who can do whatever he or she wishes. The prophet Samuel warned the children of Israel, you have forgotten how bad kings are when they started saying, everybody else has a king, we want a king. No, he said, kings take. Kings will take your sons, they will take your daughters, they will take your sheep, they will take your goats, they will take your land. That's what kings do. There's a new foreign language film that's out right now called Vinceri. comes out of Italy, of course. Vinceri to win. To win. It's an account of part of the life of Benito Mussolini called Il Duce. The leader, El Duce, this is about a mistress named Ida. She's a young woman with no future, except that she's beautiful. And one day she hears the clamor in the streets, and hears that Il Duce is coming. She claws her way up a wall to get a look at him. He's young, strong, making a difference. Crowds part to let him pass. Someone sees that she's infatuated with El Duce, sees that he gets to meet her. She becomes a mistress. He goes through a ceremony of marrying her. He was already married. She gave birth to his son sometime later. But as the little boy starts to grow and stories begin to swirl, El Duce sends two of his soldiers to take the child away from her, arrest her, and lock her up in a mental hospital in northern Italy. She spends the rest of her life trying to convince people that she is not insane. She is not insane. After years of her having been there, a new psychiatrist comes in, interviews her, and is convinced there's nothing wrong with her and says, I'm going to sign release papers for you. And then she pours out her heart and says, Oh, thank you. Finally, somebody believes that I mothered a child of Il Duce. And he says, Oh, my dear, you cannot leave. You are still, still delusional. And he walks away. There's a scene right near the end. Reminiscent of the scene at the beginning. This time she's clawing her way up a wall again, not to seal Ducci this time, but to drop notes over the wall to little schoolboys. Notes saying, I'm not supposed to be here. I am not sick. I'm not supposed to be here. I am not sick. 
when she mentions El Duce, he, they sing a little song about El Duce and walk away. She can't get out. Sincere, to win. Only the rich win, the movie says. Only the powerful win. Unless, unless someone came who could save us all. Rich, poor, weak, strong, educated, uneducated, male, female, everybody. Anybody who would come to faith in God through Christ Jesus. Number four. Looks so bleak, so hopeless. Those who had followed John come, take his body, and bury it. If you could read this whole chapter in Greek, you would see that Mark uses words here exactly the same as he would use about Jesus. That John was arrested and bound, so will Jesus be. That Herod Antipas wrestles with what to do with this innocent man, so will Pontius Pilate. Herod Antipas will make the wrong decision, so will Pilate. And Jesus will die, as did John the baptizer. And those who loved him, Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, will come and take his body away and put it in a tomb. But of course, God raised him. God raised him. And that changed everything. I've been reading more of my book, Craddock's Stories. I bought just a couple of weeks ago. <clears throat> Dr. Fred Craddock. One of his stories is about a time when he was a young professor at a seminary. He was an ordained minister in the Disciples Church, a now seminary professor with a Ph.D. He said, I, I was afraid students would ask questions that I didn't have an answer. And so I worked extra hard. He says, I got older and older. It was easier for me to say, sorry, I don't know. I'll check that out by Wednesday or Friday. But when you're a young professor, you always want to have the answer. I would come home exhausted. Often my wife would be fixing dinner and I'd walk out on the patio by myself. I'd sit down in the quiet and try to compare the day as I'd hoped it would go with the day as it actually went. And late one afternoon I was sitting out there quietly waiting for dinner when an idea came to me. Fred Craddock, what you need more of in your life is doxology. What you need more of is doxology. And you know the doxology, of course. It's been set to any number of different tunes, but the words are basically the same. It comes from logia doxa in Greek, words about glory or words of praise. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Dr. Craddock said at our supper table, I would often begin by, well, what went wrong with your day? And my son John would always say, the bell rang at 8.30 this morning. Well, what was the best thing that happened to you, John? Well, it rang again at 3.30 this afternoon. And I tried to convince my family that we needed more doxology at our dinner table. We went away on vacation, went to the beach. It was really beautiful. The four of us would get up every morning and run down to the water and take a quick dip even before we started breakfast. 
You could walk along the beach when it was cooler in the morning and late in the afternoon. You could see the sunset over the water. You could pick up beautiful shells. We decided vacations need more doxology. And then he said one day I was making a hospital call on a woman named Betty. I knew she had cancer, that she had been declared terminally ill. I got out of my car at the hospital to go inside, and doxology said, uh, can't I come along? I said, no, no, this is not a place for you, doxology. This woman's dying. I went to her room, sat down by her bed, and she started talking to me. And when I said, could we have a prayer? She said, of course. And she started praying. I got back to my car, and doxology said, shouldn't I have come along? And I said, yes, sorry. Yes, sorry. And then a few weeks later, he said he got a call that his older brother had had a massive heart attack and had died. He said, I called my wife. We're rushing around trying to get everything pulled together. Who will teach my class? Who will teach my Sunday school class on Sunday morning? Will somebody feed the dog? She's trying to get clothes together. All four of us get in a car. We drive all night across two states. And as we drive, I'm, I'm, I'm saying, I've lost my brother. But his wife has lost a husband and father to their children. I'm a preacher. I'm a seminary professor. I've got to know the right sentence to say to her. First sentence. got to be the right sentence. And the night went on and we finally got there early the next morning. My brother's wife ran out to meet us. I opened the car door. And I swear what I heard her say to me was, did you bring doxology?